The Scotiabank Healthcare Plus Physician Banking Program was co-designed with MD Financial Management for Canada's physicians by combining MD's 50-year history of working exclusively with physician households and Scotiabank's expertise in banking, we're able to provide specialized advice and unique financial solutions tailored to your needs at every stage of your career. We're better together and more committed than ever to Canada's physicians. Find out more about how we can help you and visit www.md.ca slash healthcare plus. To shingles, age isn't just a number. Do you have patients 50 or older? They're at higher risk of getting shingles. Don't wait. Talk about Shingrix with your patients over 50 today. Shingrix is indicated for the prevention of herpes zoster, HZ, or shingles in adults 50 years of age or older. Consult a product monograph at gsk.ca slash shingrix slash pm for contraindications, warnings, and precautions, adverse reactions, interactions, dosing, and administration information. To request a product monograph or to report an adverse event, please call 1-800-387-7374. Learn more at thinkshingrix.ca. Many regions in Canada are entering a second wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. Some provinces are restricting social gatherings and asking people to continue working from home if possible. But for some workplaces that are essential for healthcare or our supply chains or the economy, they're under immense pressure to stay open while also keeping their employees safe and preventing outbreaks among their staff. One practical strategy for keeping employees safer is a work bubble strategy. The concept is being used in some businesses, including Bombardier. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Executive Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Jeffrey Shaw and Ms. Haley Wickenheiser, who are two of the authors of an analysis article on working in a bubble. Their article is published in CMAJ. I've reached Haley and Jeff in Calgary. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. First, I'm going to ask you to tell us about yourselves. So starting with Haley. Sure, yeah. So I'm in my final year of medical school at the University of Calgary. And uh, prior to that, I had another life, which was uh, played hockey for 23 years for the Canadian women's national team. So I uh, competed in six Olympic Games. And uh, now I'm just uh, finishing uh, medicine up. And I'm also an assistant director of player development for the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs. So you've been really affected by COVID-19 if you're in your final year of med school. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been very challenging. We were pulled out for three months. And uh, it looks like <laughs> we're not sure what's going to happen moving forward here, but um, a bit of a precarious situation, yeah. And Jeffrey, how about you? Thanks, Kristen. Let me just first say uh, that Haley's quite humble. She also led, uh, I think, Canada's largest PPE driver, was one of the leaders of that, and is an amazing individual, and I'm very happy to be joined here with her today. She is probably the hardest working Canadian I have ever met, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I myself am a cardiologist and ICU doctor out of Calgary. I'm completing currently a fellowship in echocardiography and critical care ultrasound. During the first wave of the pandemic, I was called back to work in the ICU and worked there for, for four weeks and then another additional week after. So I had a chance to see the real effects and seriousness of the COVID-19 outbreak firsthand. At the same time, though, I have several friends who are entrepreneurs. Yeah, I was able to see the effects on business uh, from not only the outbreak, but some of the government restrictions and watch them make difficult decisions about their employment forces. And so Haley and I and others started having a conversation last spring about what are some ideas that we could develop to try to keep businesses safe um, 
either for the ones that were necessarily open at the time or as further businesses opened up. So that's where we came up with this concept of uh, working bubbles and tried to get the idea out. Honestly, Kristen, we, we talked to a bunch of different governments in Canada. We got different uh, feedback from them, all very positive. But what we realized is that they weren't in a position to you know provide this to businesses. And so what we decided to do was try to get the idea in a larger way. So we formed a, a research team to explore the idea further. And that is ultimately what culminated in this publication. And honestly, me and Haley and a few others started a business as well and created a software solution to try to be able to provide this to businesses. So that's uh, how uh, we kind of got involved with this idea in relation to the pandemic. That's great background on the article. So Haley, what does it mean actually to work in a bubble? You know, essentially a work bubble or concept in which an organization divides their workforce into groups of individuals that are separated from each other in time, space, or maybe both. And um, really a functional work bubble should have the lowest number of individuals who are required to accomplish the work. That's kind of the essence of it. And they're designed that uh, so that business operations will continue even with the removal of any one bubble from the workforce. So really designed to keep uh, the economy going, which is what we need to have in, of course, in this time of the pandemic. And they should be strictly separated in terms of time, space, or both, eliminating the risk of transmission uh, between the actual work bubbles themselves. And so that can be accomplished by rotating work days or by physical distancing with meticulous decontamination of shared spaces and separating the work bubbles from each other. And then you can also, um, you know, move individuals between a work bubble, but ideally should be accomplished within a five-day gap between cluster exposures so that you can match the incubation time of the virus. So, you know, essentially it's a concept which is separating people into groups, time, space, or both, and then being able to um, track and trace their movements so that if somebody uh, contracts in one bubble, you can knock that bubble out and carry on with the business. And I think that there are some really novel ways that people are doing that. There are certain work schedules that people have created where individuals, you know, will work Monday to Wednesday Um, And then another team will come in Thursday, Friday and and pick up Monday again. And people are actually allowing people to come back into the workforce, but in teams that have different days assigned to them or different floors assigned to them or just separated out a a workspace where where people are, are really and truly separated from each other. So there are ways in which people are really creatively uh, dealing with this problem. This is one of the strengths of this article is that it's not, based in theory and example, but you have also worked out mathematically what the effect of your theory would be, which is useful for policymakers and people in other industries to be able to see that. So your piece focuses on factories and processing plants, particularly um, using the example of Bombardier. Why are factories and places where people make and pack things a particular problem? In factories and processing plants, people need to work together and they need to work together in close proximity. It's not possible to do that type of work from home or to do it separated out when you're making an airplane, for instance, or when you're processing chicken. So it really requires people to to work side by side. And what we know about the pandemic, of course, is that being in close proximity with other people for long periods of time is the number one risk factor for spread. And so I think they have particular challenges due to just their work environment and workflow. 
In your article, you use the worked example of Bombardier, as I've said before, which is a large Canadian company with many factories and thousands of employees um, across the country. They implemented the work bubble concept with some success. Can you take us through what they did and what they're still doing? Absolutely. So at the beginning of the pandemic, they took this very seriously and they began by implementing a few basic measures and then rapidly some more complex measures. So to begin with, they did things like distancing measures, hand washing stations, PPE, and work from home for the people where that was possible. And then they started integrating cohorting strategies. That first for them looked like separating shifts out. They have shift work at their factories, so they would separate out the shifts so there was no overlap between them. Before, there had been natural overlap, and they just segregated the shifts in time and so that there was half an hour, an hour between them. And now they're moving into an even more vigorous system, which they're trialing, which separates employees out into not only shifts, but physically distanced groups within those shifts. They're conducting symptom screens and monitoring these cohorts of employees to have early warning signs like multiple employees symptomatic within a single work bubble. And so this allows them to know ahead of time who the employee's context will be and to isolate if an employee tests positive the entire cohort. So you can see in this sense, it's, it's a predictive contact tracing system where you know ahead of time who the employee contacts will be. And so if there is a case, you know who to isolate. So what you're telling me is, even though it's a predictive contact tracing system, it's also a way of limiting spread among an entire workforce. I think that was the um, idea that you came up with initially. And how does that affect the... Um, potential infection curve for um, the community, for the public at large, and for the business? Well, we think that there are benefits that extend to the business and to the surrounding community from this concept. A lot of the uh, initial first wave was actually being driven around organizations. And what we saw was there were certain outbreaks that were occurring within organizations that then spread to the larger community. And the risk for that happening is late recognition of an outbreak occurring within an organization. And so if you have a system in place which has the ability to recognize and shut things down quickly, the chance that it spreads to the larger community is lowered. The other reason why it's beneficial for public health is that it's very hard when only, oh, I don't know what it is now, 15 or 20 percent of Canadians have up uptake in the contact tracing app, it's hard to keep up with contact tracing as public health institutions. And so what this also does is allows for businesses to do contact tracing within the business so that when there is a case, they can immediately know the context of that case and are able to share that with public health. And that can help them further manage the outbreak as it may relate to the community as well. In terms of how does it help mitigate organizational spread. Well, we have a model that's produced uh, and, and demonstrated in the article as well, which really shows that by dividing any organization into groups that are either spatially or temporally isolated from each other, that the chance of spread within that organization is significantly reduced. And it's just common sense that if, if parts of the organization are actually separated from other parts of the organization, it, it's not going to be able to spread between those two areas. It also fosters employee resiliency and employee confidence. I think when 
um, you know, we see uh, the Ontario government has implemented a recommendation of a symptom trace and screen as of September 26th. And so uh, I think many more businesses are going to have to have something concrete in place to um, to, to track symptoms and, and to be able to, uh, you know, trace if something goes wrong. And so I think folks having that uh, peace of mind going into the, the business that there is some measures in place is, is also really important because one of the things that I think we are going to face once the pandemic is over is, is the fallout on mental health and potentially post-traumatic stress disorder that has incurred in, uh, in folks that have uh, been faced with this head on. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're an essential worker and you're heading to the, Call face, it really helps psychologically if you know that your employers have some strategies to try to keep you safe. So work bubbles have benefits, which you outline well in the article and have done in this, this podcast, but they also come with challenges. What are the main benefits and uh, corresponding challenges with this sort of process? I think there's sort of, you could break it down into sort of three categories. So from a, a public health perspective. Uh, we know that uh, bubbles and cohorts can reduce the reproduction number of the disease. Uh, they can increase the efficiency and effectiveness of the track and trace systems and are a, really a preemptive approach to employee contact tracing um, that reduces the spread not only within a company, but also in the surrounding community by providing the tool. The difficulty from a public health perspective is that they are difficult to really enforce. And then when you look at employees, some of the advantages is, um, as we just spoke about, an additional way to protect employees, but also increasing the employee confidence in the, in the safety of the workplace. And then the challenges that come with that um, is that from a logistics perspective, um, it might negatively affect the, you know, the work schedule. Employees might not be able to interact socially with those outside their work bubble. Uh, and, and there may be decreased productivity as you know, it gets more cumbersome to, to manage all of this, which I think we are seeing inside of this pandemic. There's a lot of uh, pandemic fatigue that goes into just the protections that have to happen on, on an everyday basis. And then the last category would be uh, employers. So from an employer benefit, if employment bubbles within a business are modular and redundant and specific bubbles can be shut down without disruption to the ongoing business operation as a whole, and also allows employers to ensure that they're taking sort of active preventative measures to keep their employees safe. Now, the, on the challenge side, again, it introduces administrative complexity in the workforce scheduling, and, and uh, it might be difficult in some cases to ensure separation of, of work bubbles from one another um, or from social bubbles. So, um, you know, it doesn't come without its challenges. It certainly isn't a perfect system, but from what we know, um, it certainly is, is highly effective. Yeah, Haley, well explained. And I think that there are um, certain work environments which it's more complex in than others. And um, a lot of it has to do with how many outside people are coming into an organization and interacting across that organization. It becomes quite complex um, to maintain the integrity of cohorts if there are, are a lot of interfaces with the external players, whether that's contractors or visitors or customers. If there's people that are interacting across a business, it makes it very difficult to really define a work bubble and keep the integrity of that work bubble. 
That's interesting. So we're talking about factories where you can keep these bubbles fairly well contained and possibly there's not any customer interaction in those kinds of work units. But what about other kinds of settings like schools, um, healthcare settings, things like that? I think schools are actually a organization structure that can do bubbles, that can do cohorting, and I think a number of them are. A classroom is a natural cohort, and so we're seeing a lot of schools form classroom cohorts where they stagger arrival times, separate out lunch, eating spaces, use different play areas in recess and and other playtimes so that kids are contained within their classroom as an example of how cohorting can be effectively used at schools. Yeah, and I can just jump in there. My sister's a teacher, um, and she's coming off her final day of quarantine because one of her students in her class tested positive for COVID. And so they were able to uh, fairly quickly within the school contain the uh, the class and the, uh, that were affected and, and send those kids home and uh, the teachers home that were affected. And as far as I know, they've had uh, no other cases in the school. So uh, I think if it's done properly, uh, it can really mitigate the spread. I think it's a good point. The amount of vigor you apply to the concept does help ensure the integrity of the system. And so when it's paired with symptom screening and uh, a lot of measures to ensure that the integrity of the cohorts actually exist, you find it to be more successful. I think healthcare systems are another interesting area where um, you could think about the concept in. Now, a healthcare system is a very, very complex system uh, in which there are people that move across different areas of a hospital. There's shifts, there's nurses who work in different locations, physicians move all around the hospital all the time, occupational therapists, physical therapists don't tend to be isolated to one unit. And so there is a lot of movement within a hospital. And so it's a very complex workflow environment and it would take um, an extreme amount of creativity and um, an ability to have redundancy, which may not be there for all types of of, uh, hospital units in order to institute such a, a system within a healthcare system. But I do think that it should be looked at because um, they are the highest risk individuals who are in the hospitals. And I, so I think that uh, the concept of cohorting, when it can be applied within a healthcare system, should be looked at as a way to mitigate against spread. So I think you've hit on something there because where there have been outbreaks among healthcare workers, it has been quite difficult for um, for folks to know what to do. You can't just pull your entire healthcare workforce off of a unit, for example, or even um, even a, w- a wider set of individuals when patients need care. But as you've been saying throughout this podcast, this is about reducing risk, not eliminating risk. It's about keeping us safer than we would be if uh, we did none of this. And so it definitely bears some thinking about of how we could change the way we work within healthcare to make uh, healthcare employees a bit safer. One of the biggest challenges in healthcare systems when there are cases is the number of people that it affects who are taking care of patients. And so when there are widespread isolations that occur in nurses, physicians, and and others who are looking after patients, it makes taking care of patients all that more challenging. And so having strategies that are not only designed to mitigate against the spread within an organization, but are designed to have a plan in place ahead of time of who will immediately be isolated and who won't. If you can institute a system where you know the contacts of the employees ahead of time, in this case in a healthcare system, it may 
be able to prevent the number of isolations that we sometimes see when a hospital outbreak occurs. So also thinking about having these plans in place and the whole idea that we talked about earlier of improving employee resiliency and um, possibly supporting mental health. I think it's important that places or organizations or places of work are seen to be having plans, which then reinforces the, ex- the action of individuals to keep themselves and their communities safe. I had this um, conversation with my son who was very nervous about going back to school. Uh, He's in high school. And I said to him, look, there are certain things that are being put in place at your school that are to minimize risk. And then you have some things that are within your control, like wearing a mask and sanitizing your hands and all that kind of stuff, which then brings your risk to a negligible point. And beyond that, there are some things that you can't control. But if you put in your part and they put in theirs, then everybody can be a lot safer. So I was thinking actually about my kids and their athletics. One of my kids is in in a swim team and um, they're employing a sort of a a bubble concept. I wondered if um, elite athletes are doing this and um, and with what effect. Yeah, well, it's it's a really good point. And and I I can speak to this from a couple different angles, Uh, Kirsten. You know, at the the start of the pandemic, I was... uh, I was in one of the hospitals in in Toronto in the first hospital that had the first COVID patient and um, just prior to getting pulled out as a med student. And uh, in speaking to a lot of my friends who were attendings and working, um, you know, they were saying, geez, we think we're going to run out of PPE here in like two days. And so that was sort of the impetus for our Conquer COVID campaign, where we raised um, uh, a lot of money and and PPE to distribute. Um, And so what I sort of learned early on is, you know, people aren't afraid to treat patients or be involved in the pandemic, but what they are afraid of is if if they don't have the protection. And so you take that outside of the healthcare setting and into just everyday life. And I think, um, you know, regular citizens that, uh, that aren't in a healthcare industry feel the same way. And it filters down into our kids where, um, you know, reassuring our our children that, that they are safe and that they, they can go to school and not, uh, you know, contract COVID is, is very, very important. But at the same time, staying involved in sport and um, keeping our day-to-day lives is just as important. There's a bit of a balance here between shutting everything down and uh, still living our lives. And so um, if you look at, first of all, elite sports, so let's just take the NHL for an example. Well, the NHL is kind of the perfect world. And I have to give a tremendous amount of credit to Dr. Winna May Wissa from uh, the University of Calgary here, who is the NHL's um, chief uh, health uh, director and him and his team have done an amazing job but the obviously um, the the asset that the NHL has is they've been able to completely shut themselves out from the outside world Um, I was just on a FaceTime the other day with one of the players uh, from Tampa Bay and he was showing me what the inside of the bubble looked like and said that he really hadn't seen green grass for 66 days (laughs) and so this is um this is a perfect example of, you know, a utopia where you can you can really mitigate just about every aspect and they have all the resources to do that. But you filter down into, uh, let's say, minor hockey or a minor swimming club and it becomes a lot more difficult because you can't control the outside world as much. And so, um, you know, my experience is primarily with, with minor hockey, but um, I think that um, there's been some interesting things that have been implemented, things like children having to change at home 
um, one of the greatest things of the pandemic is that um, in some ways parents aren't allowed into the arenas, which I think is a great thing for our kids. They can just go in and play and then they don't have any of that, uh, you know, that sometimes negative stuff that comes with having parents in the rink and then, and then they leave the rink. So just by scaling down and simplifying the measures, changing at home, entering the arena, only using your water bottle, decreasing the amount of children that are in contact with each other. So instead of, let's say, 20 players in, in the right rink at one time, there's now maybe only six to 10 at one time. Um, and then um, decreasing the amount of time that people are interacting with each other. So I think that, you know, sport is doing the best job that it can. When you look at the Olympic uh, level, uh, I still know a lot of elite Olympic athletes around the world that aren't uh, able to be back into their training facilities, or if they are, it's in a very modified way with decreased numbers. Uh, but I think people are generally adapting uh, and generally finding ways to be nimble and, and work around this, but it certainly isn't life as we knew it before at all. Haley, have you seen cohorting um, being instituted within minor hockey? Yes. And so actually minor hockey has implemented um, quite a rigorous from Hockey Canada from the top down, quite a rigorous set of, um, of rules um, where, for example, uh, children are not allowed to say travel. So tournaments that used to happen where you could say go from Calgary to Edmonton are no longer happening. I run one of the largest hockey festivals in the world where we have 7,000 people every year, 110 teams that uh, come into our uh, event. And we, through cohorting and all of the mitigation risks, uh, would only be able to host that event with a maximum of 16 teams to be able to do it safely at this point with all of the measures. So uh, we aren't really going to be able to have that event. So tournaments are cancelled, but the ability to essentially have to play the same teams over and over again is what's happening in, in many of these um, minor hockey settings and, and in team sport settings. But when it comes to individual sport settings, I think it's, it's a little bit easier where you can, you know, set times and, you know, have people coming and going and, and really monitor what's in and out of the environment. What you're talking about um, is really interesting to me in that um, if you take the example of the NHL, I think that there's a relationship here between how much you can separate your organization from the outside world and how um, much dividing your organization could help mitigate spread. And what I mean by that is if you can completely separate yourself from the outside world, then you really don't have to divide the organization down further. But as the risk from the outside world grows, and that might be that the level of community spread in your area is high, then the need and benefit of creating um, smaller groups that isolate from each other within an organization really starts taking effect as a successful tool to mitigate against spread. And so the NHL having zero outside contact uh, with the world doesn't, you know, can keep that the the whole organization as a bubble in the playoffs. Whereas, um, you know, for people who are in areas where their employees go home and there's significant outbreak within the community, these uh, other ideas and and tools such as cohorting be, into small groups become really important. Jeff, I think that's um, that's an issue that we didn't touch on in this podcast: the concept of community prevalence and what effect that has on the work bubble strategy. It strikes me that it's sort of a circular thing, that, that having work bubbles will reduce community prevalence and reduce community prevalence will make the uh, work bubble concept work better. But if we're talking about a high community prevalence, does it mean that the effectiveness of work bubbles is lessened? 
No, I think that it is obviously a higher challenge. So, um, but does the strategy still hold? So, so if we just think about having an organization of 100 people divided into groups of 10 that are physically isolated from each other within the organization, and someone comes in, in in group one and has it and is recognized, you can still shut those 10 people down and put, you know, ask them to go into isolation. And that should still prevent the spread from that group of individuals to others within the organization. The challenge is, is that you may have spread events occurring outside of the organization, and there's nothing that an organization can do to stop that. And so, yeah, it's it's more likely that more than one bubble will become positive because of um, spread outside the organization. But the concept should still hold as a tool to decrease spread within the organization. And that's really important in those times, perhaps even more important in those times to have all measures within and with outside of organizations to reduce spread. That's been a hugely interesting conversation. Thank you for joining me today, both of you. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having us. I've been speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Shaw and Ms. Haley Wickenheiser. To read the article they co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app, and let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Executive Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. <laughs>